0: Welcome to rise radio with counselor and prevention expert randy havison recovery in various forms is something that many of us face every day most of us need some sort of intervention to start the process of rebuilding and reconnecting our lives this program serves to empower you to find new ways of solving old problems now here is your host randy havison
1: Hey everybody, this is Randy Havison coming to you, Rise Radio. Good morning or good afternoon depending on where you are. You know, I thought I'd start off my first show by kind of giving you a little bit of introduction of why I'm here, who I am, and uh, just kind of set the stage for what it is that we're going to be doing during this show. Um, you know, my journey started a long time ago. Uh, I grew up in Los Angeles and uh, just had a had a really great childhood uh, just enjoyed things and went to a really good high school and uh, started making some decisions that weren't the best decisions for me. One thing led to another, and uh, I started down the path of alcohol and other drugs, and it turned into a horrible mess by the time I got to college. I don't want to get into a lot of the details. We'll probably do that at other times, but I want this show to be more about the solution. You know, yes, we all have hard times in our life. We all go through things that are difficult, but I want this show to be about Uh, the solutions, about the recovery aspect. That's why this is about rise. It's about the recovery. So my, my journey took me to a place where I was expelled from college and I just couldn't do it anymore. And I reached out for help and I got the help that I needed, turned my life around, found amazing professionals and support from friends and support from family, and was able to get back into life. And, uh, I graduated from college, got my bachelor's in psychology, went on to get a master's degree in counseling, and realized that I wanted to make a difference in other people's lives just like people had made a difference in mine. So I started my journey working as a counselor in treatment centers and really enjoyed that uh, until a friend of mine one day called and said, hey, do you want to come speak at this high school? And I thought, sure, I can share my story at a high school. And I went and spoke at the high school, and, and it seemed to go really well. You know, my first program on stage, I was talk, talking to a group of 1,000 high school students, and, and the most amazing thing happened. I, I got a standing ovation from 1,000 high school students talking about alcohol and other drugs. So that was my journey where I said, you know what, I could probably do this for a long time. And I started speaking at more high schools and speaking on college campuses and people really enjoy the programs because one of the things that I like to bring to my presentations and again, what I want to bring to this show is I want it to be real. You know, I don't want it to be some kind of a staged thing. Uh, I I didn't even practice what I was going to say here because I wanted it to come from my heart rather than from my head. And that's what I want this to be. And I also want you, the listener, to kind of help me and guide me to what the direction of this show is going to be. You know, I want to talk about a variety of different issues, not just alcohol and drugs. I want to talk about recovery from anything. Uh you know, whether it's sexual assault, eating disorder, growing up in an alcoholic family, uh overcoming an obstacle and realizing that you have the potential to do amazing things. You know, I want this to be about a variety of different issues, not just this. But for me, my journey came in the in in drugs and alcohol Um, and where was I oh yeah so I was speaking at high schools and colleges and then one of the people that I spoke to called me one day and said hey I'm at a conference here in Northern California and there's a school up here a campus that's looking for a coordinator of alcohol and other drug education and wondering if you might be interested in applying for the job and freaked me out I thought work on a college campus they used to throw me out of colleges now I'm going to go work for one And one step at a time, I applied for the job, I interviewed for the position, and they ended up hiring me. And I became the coordinator of alcohol and other drug education at the University of the Pacific up in Northern California. And I loved it. I was working with the peer educators and talking to athletes and fraternities and sororities and setting policy with administration. And it was so much fun. I really enjoyed it. And I loved working with the students, but I was... uh, working off of a grant. And unfortunately, the grant ended, they decided to discontinue the position. And I knew I wanted to work in higher ed. So I started looking for other positions. And I found one at James Madison University out in Harrisonburg, Virginia. And I'm a little California boy going out to Virginia. That was quite a culture shock. But it was an amazing experience. And I got to work with a lot of the uh, athletic teams. And I worked with 11 different athletic teams. And I worked with the fraternities and the sororities. And I started a peer education program. And I just really enjoyed it. But one of the highlights of my my time at James Madison was I started a group for students in recovery. And I didn't know what to expect. Uh, I, I expected, you know, a lot of people who are in recovery, people that I had met at meetings and, and through my other connections would show up. But it was amazing to me that people started showing up for the meeting that weren't addicted to alcohol or other drugs, and they weren't in recovery from that issue. They were in recovery from growing up in an alcoholic family. It was either a mother or a father who were alcoholic, and they thought that once they got to college, all those issues would go away, but they found that they did not go away. And they came to my group and we started talking about the issues that were specific to them. And I realized that when we talk about recovery, it has to go beyond alcohol and other drugs. And I worked at JMU for a while, for actually uh, almost three years, until we had the blizzard of the century back in 1996, and California boy said, I don't want to shovel snow anymore. So I looked for other jobs, said thank you to James Madison, left on really good terms, and found a position at a university down in South Georgia. And they had a, a grant from the U.S. Department of Education to put together a comprehensive program, and they hired me to come down and, uh, and start their program. And within a year, we had an amazing program set up, and it actually was recognized by the Promising Practices Manual as being one of the most effective, comprehensive alcohol and other drug education programs from campuses around the country. So that was a huge honor, and I, I was so grateful for that and that's when other schools started calling and saying, "Hey, can you help me do a program on my campus? Can you come speak to our students?" And I realized that I could reach more people as a professional speaker than on on a variety of campuses rather than just working on one campus. So I took that leap and and uh, terminated my position at Valdosta and moved up to Atlanta and became a professional speaker. And that was. A, a terrifying yet exhilarating experience just like this you know hosting a radio talk show i mean this is this is crazy when you think about where i came from and where i am today i'm just extremely grateful and extremely humbled for this opportunity and again my hope is to to empower you and inspire you and educate you to live your life in a better way and i'm sure i'm going to learn a lot through this show as well and that's what it's all about so i want to bring on guests from a variety of different fields although you know my field is Uh, higher education, alcohol and other drug education, health promotion, health education. So we're going to be spending some time talking about that, but I want to expand it beyond that. And again, it's really going to depend on you, the listener. I am hoping I'll get your comments, your questions. Uh, This is a call-in show, so feel free to call in if you have a question or you want to make a comment. Um, we, we welcome that. And also on the website, riseradioshow.com, there's a place where you can make comments and ask questions. And, and I will answer every question and, and address every comment that comes through. So feel free to do that. So as a speaker, everything was wonderful and, and, and great. And I was, felt like I was really making a huge impact uh, around the country. And then I found my wife. And we got married, and, and it was an amazing relationship, and, and we are still married. I think we're at 13 and a half years, almost 14. Oh, I'm sure Jill will correct me if I messed that one up. But I think it was 13. We're coming up on 14 in, in December, November, December. And, um, and when she got pregnant, I realized, you know, I'm not going to want to be out there speaking 200 days a year when my baby's here. And I thought, what can I do to still make a, a difference? And I came up with the idea to do a sober living community for college students. And I asked a lot of people, how do I do this? What's the best way to do it? And I put this program together. And we were in Atlanta. And the program was amazing. And our students were getting sober. And we had a men's program and a women's program. And we had a typical uh, GPA every semester of three point five and we went started with four beds and we ended up with twenty eight and things were going really well, but I made some very poor business decisions. I hired the wrong people and kept them on too long. I expanded the program too quickly. I came out to California uh, to open a second location. It was way too soon and and Bottom line, the business didn't do well, fell apart, and I thought, this is it, everything's over, and now what am I going to do? And the message behind this, and and I'll probably end up talking about this a lot, because I thought that was so devastating, and it was. It was a devastating experience, but I thought I'd never be able to recover from that. I didn't know what I was going to do next, but... I, I leaned on the support of my family and friends and realized that speaking is really my passion, and I started working my way back, and I came up with Rise uh, as kind of the, the guiding light of my, my business because Rise is about recovery, intervention, support, and education, and I love the Phoenix as the symbol of rise, because the phoenix every now and then crashes and burns, but always comes back brighter and stronger. And I started working my way back and, and I wrote my book, Party With a Plan, which was amazing. And I don't think I ever would have done that if, if I was still doing the Hero House program. But today, I'm an author and I have a book and it was an, it's a number one bestseller on Amazon and I'm so grateful for that. And then I get a call from uh, an email from Voice America from Joel, my producer, saying, hey, I saw your profile on LinkedIn and I looked at your websites. Would you be interested in doing a radio show? Who would have ever thought that I would be the host of a radio talk show? But here I am. And and I'm really excited about where this is going to go and and how it's going to unfold and and manifest itself and just completely grateful for all the opportunities that that I have in my life and and I have all my family and friends especially my mom and dad who've been so supportive through this whole thing I'm still close to them and they're amazing people and and just I'm. So grateful. So I was just given the cue that we have one minute until break and I want to kind of let you know that after the break, I'm going to be bringing a guest onto the show. I'll be having guests throughout, you know, every week. I'm hoping to have a different guest addressing a different topic and I'm bringing on Doug Everhart. Doug is the uh, Director of Wellness and Health Education at University of California at Irvine, and he's been a friend of mine for 26 years now, and we're going to talk about the evolution of health promotion and health education in higher ed, and he is the director, or he helped start a program called Step Up, which is an amazing program, and I'm so excited to talk to him and, and let all of you know about this program, so we will be coming back in a few seconds, and tune in. You know, well, I, I don't know what to say. What do you say when you're a host, when you're taking a break? Anyway, we'll come back with Doug Everhart after this break.
2: This is the home of the top light coaches,
1: entrepreneurs, and success drivers. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. How do you define work? Is it that mundane Monday through Friday place that seems to be sucking a third of your life out of you? Or have you made it a place of personal fulfillment, achievement, and purpose?
0: Two decades of sexual, emotional, and physical abuse nearly took their toll. In her 20s, she turned her life around and set upon a path to help others. She can help you find the key to take control of your life, too. Listen every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel.
2: Build a better business. Achieve that goal. Make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed.
0: You are listening to Rise Radio. To reach Randy Havison or his guest today, call in to 1 346 9141. That's 1 346 9141. You may also send an email to Randy at RiseradioShow.com. Now, back to Rise Radio.
1: Okay, and welcome back. And on the line, we have my good friend and someone that I respect and admire greatly, Doug Everhart. Uh, I'm going to read his bio here. Uh, Doug, after completing a BS in engineering at the University of Redlands in 1989, Doug began his student affairs career continuing on as a housing residence life staff, where he served for five years as an RA and RD. He also dabbled in career services, recreation, student activities, orientation, and Greek life. After identifying his passion for substance abuse prevention, he completed an MA in education and counseling in 1991, also from the University of Redlands. After successfully writing and implementing a federal grant from the Department of Education, he developed a comprehensive substance abuse prevention program at University of Redlands, strongly based in peer education and student programming. He took that model to the University of California, Riverside in 1998, where he successfully implemented and expanded the model over 12 years. In the summer of 2010, he accepted a position as alcohol programs manager at University of California, Irvine's Health Education Center, now the Center for Student Wellness and Health Promotion. He was named interim director in February 2011 and eventually became the director in May 2013, which it was about time. But we'll get to that. Doug is also very involved as a volunteer nationally. He has served as the Bacchus, with the Bacchus Network since 1993, serving as California State Coordinator for three years, the Area 2 Consultant, and as National Coordinator of Student-Athlete Affiliate Support. In 1995, the Champs Life Skills Program served as his bridge to athletics. Active with the NCAA since 2000, he has served as a facilitator for the National Student Athlete Leadership Conference and on the Champs Life Skills Advisory Team. He is currently on the Apple Conference Advisory Team, Step Up Bystander Program Advisory Board, and the One Student No Woman Left Behind Advisory Board. And Doug, how do you have time to breathe?
2: Oh, I guess I should breathe now. <laughs> yeah, breathe now. That'll be yeah, good. Yeah, that, that's a, that's a good thing.
1: Yes, and thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate this, and Absolutely. I just
2: congratulations think you- on the show, Randy. So so proud ah, of you. Thank you,
1: thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's been quite the journey, but I, I'm very grateful to be here. So, okay, you have had a very interesting uh, background. I want to know. You know, when I read this, I didn't know that you started in engineering. Yeah. How did you tell me about that journey? like when you were a kid growing up, was it, "Hey, I want to be a health educator or do I want to be an engineer what What was that journey?
2: well, it, it was quite the journey as, as you, I'm just as surprised as anybody else as I read my bio and and I share with <laughs> students uh, how I got here. but um, <clears throat> my life as a kid, I grew up um, a musician, I played piano and played trumpet um, that was kind of. Introduced to me at an early age, I also was very much into sports. So I played all kinds of sports, uh, from baseball to basketball, and eventually fell in love with the game of soccer. Um, mm-hmm. So I was a musician and an athlete growing up. And when I got to high school, I had to make the the decision uh, between the two because. Um, while I excelled at both soccer and playing trumpet, the seasons in high school overlapped. So, marching band season and mm. soccer season were both in the fall. I talked to the band director and said, Hey, can I play soccer? I talked to the soccer coach, Hey, can I do this band thing? And they both kind of said, No, we, we need a commitment one way or the other. So, I ended up choosing the band route in high school um, and gave up soccer, although I played, you know, recreationally here and there when I could. But, um, I was destined to be basically a band director. I was um, excelled in music, uh, enjoyed music, um, became drum major of the marching band by my senior year, and nice. was a lead trumpet in, in all ensembles. But um, the band director came to me and said, "Well, I, I want to encourage you as to as a musician to be a band director. You've got so many other talents academically that would pay much better than a than a, a music teacher." So I, I would. Encourage you to just look at other options. Not that I want to discourage you, because I think you'd be great. So, as a typical '80s college kid, wanting the the money and the homes and the cars uh, in my future, I the the money thing resonated with me. So I said, I know I don't want to be a doctor. I know I don't I don't want to be a lawyer. So I kind of looked at engineering because I liked physics, I liked math, I liked building and designing things. So I started talking to people. Um, my mom worked at the University of Redlands. So she scheduled an appointment for me with the uh, chair of the department. So uh, after a conversation with him, uh, he convinced me that it was a good program. Um, So I stayed home in Redlands uh, and went to the university and majored in engineering and then got the best of both worlds in a sense because the band director said, well, since you're going to stay locally, why don't you stick around and and help me teach uh, the, the marching band? So I was able to go to school locally, get my degree in engineering, um, and continued to work uh, with the band and, and taught high school marching band for ten years. Marched in drum and bugle corps. So I was able to pursue academic dreams, life dreams, as well as uh, continue my music career. Um, but by the time I was a junior, I was an RA in the dorms, um, and then went on to become a head resident and just kind of decided I really like this college environment thing, Um, just the interaction with students, the environment, the energy. Um, And I kind of decided I I didn't want to um, sit behind a desk or in a lab and and design things. I I really enjoyed working with people, and I just loved the energy of a a college environment. So Mm -hmm. I decided and made the difficult decision um, to uh, forego a career in engineering, although I c- completed the degree uh, and had to tell my parents that, which was probably one of the scarier things to do, <laughs> <laughs> especially yeah. at a private institution, spending all that money, um, mm-hmm. saying I'm going to completely go a different direction. And I freaked out a little bit. And I heard you talking about kind of your career path, and you're like, what the heck am I doing going in this direction? Um, never thought that was a possibility. So I went to the Career Center and just kind of bounced the ideas off of them, and they said, Doug, um, you know, 20% of college graduates actually go into a field that is directly related to their major, 20%. Mm. So you're not alone. It's about getting a degree. It's about completing the process. And then it's about finding what you're passionate about. So that really validated the decision because I was really passionate about the college environment and, and helping students. That's why I got involved as an RA. That's why I got involved in student activities, uh, on a college campus. And I just wanted to continue that. So,
1: yeah. well, let me uh, ask like you I, this. When you yeah. were, when you were doing the engineering, did you feel uh-huh. like that was your passion when you were doing your engineering classes and getting involved with that? Did you feel at that time, like, this is what I want to do? Or was there always kind of that little thought that, oh, I don't know if this is what I want to be into?
2: Yeah, thanks for asking that question, because it's a good question, and I kind of skipped over a piece um, just for time, but um, yeah, I don't know that it was really um, a passion. I enjoyed it. I worked hard at it, Um, Mm -hmm. but I I enjoyed the music stuff, too. I was really loving the marching stuff. Like I said, I did Drum and Bugle Corps and competed at a very high level in that activity, Um, was teaching and designing shows for other schools, Um, so I was... able to to do some of the design and creative side of it as well um, and actually, by my junior year, I thought, well, how can I combine these two interests and maybe find something I'm a little bit more passionate about? So mm-hmm. I started dabbling in sound engineering. I had the dream of, you know, working for Disney Studios or one of the recording nice. studios and getting into sound engineering and, and audio recording and things like that. So I started taking some of those classes at, at the university. And as I talked to the professor and some other folks in, in the field, they said, well, do you own your your own sound equipment and mixing boards and or do you have a connection to a studio or do you have access to a studio? And the, the answer to all of those questions was no. And <laughs> they quickly said, well, you really have to have access to those things or have them yeah. to, to break into the industry. And mm-hmm. at that point, I just kind of felt like, well, maybe this is just not for me uh, and kind of gave that up. And then uh, the rest is history.
1: Yeah. So how did you go from residence life and student activities to alcohol and other drug.
2: Yeah, so uh, like I said, I, I dabbled in some career services stuff. I just tried to find a way, how can I help students the most? And the more I dabbled in things, um, I quickly realized that what students are really struggling with is um, just healthy choices, and mostly around mm-hmm. alcohol. Now, we were lucky, and, and I knock on wood because I've I've never been in an institution that has had to go through, while I was there, uh, an alcohol tragedy, um, so I, yes. I consider myself very lucky, and I've dedicated mm-hmm. my career to that goal, was trying to prevent that from happening, uh, mm-hmm. and so far, so good. Again, I knock on wood, because I know yep. that's I'm very lucky there. Um, I'm knocking for you, too. Yeah, thanks, <laughs> um, but that was my goal, I said, you know, the students are, are kind of struggling with this issue, and... At the time, it was really just kind of a, a black and white issue, you either drink or don't drink. And most mm-hmm. students at the time were drinking, or at least that was the perception, um, right. and it was the whole just say no approach and abstinence or 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 drink type of thing. So I said, there's got to be a better way to approach this. We've got to be able to talk to people about responsible choices and, and just looking out for each other, as well as yourself, too, because I just saw people standing by and watching these, you know, situations unfold and nobody really doing anything, which Mm -hmm. will come into play as we get into the step-up piece way later. But at the time, I just wanted to make a difference with students and and really kind of educate and help them look at their choices and behaviors and and maybe just make some different choices. Uh, Again, not to just avoid the tragedy, but just to put themselves in different situations that, didn't hamper or interfere with their academic pursuits or their career pursuits or, or their dreams, their life dreams. So, and that's that whole
1: prevention piece is helping them to keep from getting to that point where it's affecting their lives. Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. So I went to the Dean of Students at the time and I just said, look, I, I, I've, you know, kind of dabbled in these different areas, but I'm really passionate about maybe looking into this substance abuse, alcohol prevention stuff. Um, what do you think? So she sent me to a conference in Atlanta, Georgia. At the <laughs> time, it was the National Collegiate Drug Awareness Conference. They used to wow. have one in the fall for Alcohol Awareness Week and then one in February for Drug Awareness Week. And oh, yeah. I went to Atlanta and I talked to a ton of people at this conference, and I walked away with three things. One, um, every successful program engaged students through peer education. So all of these premier programs that I was hearing about all had very strong peer education programs, and they were supported through an organization called the Bacchus Network, or at Mm -hmm. the time it was just Bacchus. And Mm -hmm. um, the other thing I heard was The funding you need to get your program off the ground and to fund the effort is um, a FIPSI grant, which is the Fund Mm -hmm. for the Improvement of Post Secondary Education. I can't remember, I believe.
1: You still remember remember that that acronym? (laughs) (laughs) Um,
2: But it was a a grant out of the U.S. Department of Education um, Mm -hmm. of a couple hundred thousand dollars over two years to basically provide seed money to start a program. Uh, a comprehensive program on a campus, and I know you mentioned. I think you had a FIPSI grant at Valdosta, right? Um, yeah. So, yeah. The, so that those two things—a peer education program and then a FIPSI grant to fund the program—were the two things I kind of said were essential as I walked away. But then I also talked to a bunch of people that said, you know, there's two populations that that you'll never reach on this topic, and that's Greeks and athletes. And I was huh. not a Greek. Um, although I was heavily recruited as, as a fraternity, uh, member, but I just chose not to because of my role in, in housing. Um, and then I wasn't a collegiate athlete, although athlete, although I played sports my entire life up to high school. So when someone tells me you can't do something that, that obviously being a competitive athletic type of person, (laughs) I make it a challenge. So yeah. I, hey, Doug,
1: we need to take a quick break, but we okay. will get back to that challenge and how you overcame it when we come back from this break. And we'll be back in a couple minutes. And um, I, I, I want to know, before we do break,
2: what was the year that we met? We met in 1990. Wow. It was February of 1990. 19- Yeah, 1990. Yeah, so we'll talk a little bit
1: about that, too, and we definitely need to get to step up also. So we're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back with Doug Everhart. Live up to your fullest
0: potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel.
1: Can you think of anybody who does not want a better life and to be a better person? Think about that for a second. Almost everyone wants to be better, but how does one go about doing that? One thing that is making people better every week is tuning into the Self-Improvement Show with Dr. Irene Conlon. All real change comes from within, but many of us don't know where to find the information or guidance we need to make the changes that bring about the improvement. Most of us don't know how to work within. Listen Thursdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Empowerment.
0: The Compassionate Life is about... Just that. There are so many human beings who have made a name for themselves by being humanitarians. They have become individuals who are known for being selfless, kind, and compassionate. Host Dr. Brittany King is also one of these humanitarians. Each week she shares stories of kindness that she has experienced throughout the world, both as a contributor and recipient of these acts of love and kindness. Listen every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Empowerment.
2: This is the home of the top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success
0: drivers. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. You are listening to Rise Radio. To reach Randy Havison or his guest today, call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Randy at riseradioshow.com. Now, back to Rise Radio.
1: Welcome back to Rise Radio, and we are here with my guest, Doug Everhart from University of California at Irvine. And we have been talking about his journey, and we just got to the part where he realized that peer education is a key to prevention. Uh, and working with athletes and Greeks and other high-risk populations, that those are, are key uh, groups to start working on. Now, Doug, was this at University of Redlands, or was this at yes. Riverside?
2: Yeah, at Redlands. This
1: was it. Okay, yeah. And this was what year was this, when all this started happening with Bacchus and FIPSI?
2: So, I, I started the program in 1990, um, Started working on that master's degree uh, in education counseling and uh, wrote the Fipsy grant and it got funded in starting the fall of 1992. So first couple of years, I was kind of getting the peer education group started, starting to do some programming, and then we got our Fipsy grant to really get things moving and, and going. And um, the Fipsy grant basically funded two things, a peer education program as well as some um, Substance-free programming initiatives, which I tied intramurals and recreation into it, so that's where I kind of mm-hmm. was. I uh, connected the athletic interest uh, with the grant and substance abuse prevention as kind of a healthy uh, alternative substance-free programming option. Um, so we really tied our intramurals and recreation stuff into it. So nice. um, as we built our peer education program, I know right before the break we we're kind of talking about that how did you mm-hmm. break into the athletes and Greeks who I was told I was never would never reach uh-huh. um, we I, I built a, a what I call a population based peer education model, so many campuses had uh, topic based models which is you train students in specific topic areas and then they go out and educate and raise awareness on that particular topic. Well, I felt it was better, um, at least for our campus, to try and reach specific populations, specifically because I was given this kind of challenge. So um, I said, well, let's get a bunch of Greeks to see if they would be interested in educating each other versus hearing from me or students that are not Greek, um, talking to them about these, these issues. And then the same thing with athletes. So I started recruiting uh, specifically some Greek members and specifically some student-athletes. And then I also had general uh, students who would work with the housing communities and student organizations and things like that. So um, what I did is trained them um, in the topic of alcohol and substance abuse prevention, and then they specifically did programming and outreach to their own populations. So they had the credibility. They had the relatability. They spoke the language of their peers. Um, which was, to me, a a much more effective way to go. So that's kind of how the bridge started. And then through the two years of the grant, as the program continued to grow, our program started getting national recognition from the Bacchus organization and and other awards. um, The grant ran out, and at the time, uh, the university had to decide what they wanted to do. Um, So they continued the position, and they said the only way we can... Uh, have this position continue is if you take over um, the Greek advisor role um, and then take over running our uh, intramurals and recreation department. Um, So I said, okay, uh, as long as I can continue to do the substance abuse work, that obviously ties in, and and I'll just tie that in. So they added that to the job, uh, and I was able to to work both. So I worked in athletics running... um, the Recreation and and Intramurals Program, um, and then also continued the peer education and substance abuse efforts, um, but was also asked to be the Greek advisor for fraternities. And the challenge So you've been
1: wearing a lot of hats for a long time.
2: Yes. (laughs) So (laughs) the challenge there was, I was not Greek, so now I'm going to be advising an entire population when I don't have that relatability or credibility, although... I had established credibility over the last few years through the peer education and the intramural program. Obviously, Greeks are are very involved in, in intramurals because they're competitive. Uh, mm-hmm. And I had built a great relationship with, with all of the Greek organizations through that um, work. So it did give me that tie. So while it was challenging to kind of learn the ropes as you go in the Greek world, um, it was actually really eye-opening. And I'll admit, I went kind of kicking and screaming because I'm thinking, I'm an alcohol and other drug educator, and you want me to be the Greek advisor for fraternities? (laughs) Are you kidding me? Well, it kind of makes sense. It kind of makes sense, but I thought it was a huge challenge. Um, And it was. I mean, there there were some challenges, but I think I also had the um, respect of the students and the organization's through my other work and it allowed me to to build that bridge even stronger as an advisor within within the population. So over time, I kind of built that relationship and I still am in contact today uh, with many of those former Greek leaders. In fact, our local high school nice. football coach was one of those Greek leaders that I worked with. Wow. Um, I'm actually coaching our club, my son's club soccer team with one of those former Greek leaders. He's an huh. assistant coach with me. So those relationships were were built strong and, and they've lasted um, my entire life. So, um,
1: and don't you find that that's one of the biggest rewards of being in this field is when you watch these students go on to be successful and 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 do great things with their lives? I mean, is yeah. that kind of what your one of your Absolutely. rewards is?
2: That that was the whole goal. Like I said from the get go, was just to help students yeah. make you know good decisions that they can then. Achieve their their life dreams uh, and succeed, and that's really all we all want in in yeah. higher education, right? Um, faculty Absolutely. For that goal. Hey, I want
1: to talk a little bit about Apple
2: because I know that
1: yep. that's been going on for a while, and it's such an amazing organization. Um, how did that start up and and where is it now? What are you seeing the evolution of the Apple Conference? And a little bit, talk because a lot of people might not know what the Apple Conference is, so a little background on, on how yep. that came about.
2: Yeah, so the uh, Apple Conference was introduced to me, actually, ironically, by the athletic director at Redlands at the time. In 1995, he got a brochure about this you know, conference, um, and then also the, the Champs Life Skills Program mm-hmm. uh, that the NCAA was starting. So I looked into both and uh, went to the first Apple Conference in 1992 at Stanford University, took a couple of student-athletes. Uh, the whole Apple Conference is basically a kind of health and wellness education model specifically designed for athletics departments uh, and helping student-athletes. So, and how many,
1: how many campuses would you say are involved with Apple today?
2: Oh, across the country, who I have yeah. no idea the number, but it's it's got to be in the hundreds, right now uh I would say thousands of thousands campuses, yeah um only because it's about eighty campuses per year, and it's been around you know twenty something years so wow um yeah twenty five years I think they had their twenty fifth anniversary this year year last year, but wow, uh, that's great. so uh, hundreds, if not maybe over a little over a thousand uh Campuses. Um, That's one, but but yeah, it basically helps specifically athletics departments and student athletes address. Uh, started with just alcohol and other drug issues, but not, then it kind of expanded to other related health and wellness issues. So um, it's a, it's a great model, and many athletics departments go. And the whole thing is you you bring a team of people. Um, Athletic administrators, coaches, student affairs professionals, AOD professionals, and then they always encourage you and now require um, you to bring at least two student-athletes with you. So from the student-athletes all the way up to the administration, you've got a team of up to six people that are spending a weekend learning how to effectively address AOD and other wellness issues within athletics specifically. So, yeah, that's so great
1: cuz you know problems. here's here's one of my frustration points is that we see in the media when one athlete or or a few athletes, student athletes mess up in college but what people don't see is that most athletes are living their dream and living their passion and they are making good choices so right. you know it it always bothers me when people globalize oh look at those student athletes Right. when most of them are making good choices. So that's why I wanted to kind of put a focus on that um, to kind of show that most athletes are making really
2: good choices. It's
1: just a few who are who are blowing it. Would you agree?
2: Absolutely. And I, I think the Greek world uh, suffers from mm-hmm. the same kind of um, perceptions and, and images. Um, I think the athletes do. So I think any identifiable population tends to have Blanket uh, judgment or perceptions put on them, oftentimes by the actions of a few. Uh, right. And I think that's a societal issue uh, that that we you know deal with today as well um, in our mm-hmm. world. So, but yes, to to answer your question, student athletes certainly have have to deal with that. I think the Greek world. Uh, has mm-hmm. to deal with that. But I also am, am honest with them. When I talk to those populations, I say, yes, I would agree that most of you are making good, healthy choices and are being misperceived and, and painted with a broad brush by the media and society, but at the same time, you have to also be able to look in the mirror and say, we've kind of earned some of that reputation as a population as well because we haven't done enough to change that as a population, and maybe while we may not be the ones uh, doing the behavior, we have certainly stood by and watched it, and in some cases encouraged it, um, and that's not helping either. So I am also very honest with those populations in in being able to to look themselves in the mirror and answer that question honestly, if we're going to effectively address it and turn that tide.
1: Yep. Good. Excellent. And hey, I want to make sure we talk about Step Up, because I, I just love what you're doing, and I think that it can go beyond colleges and, and help a lot more people. And if we run out of time today, I might have you back, and we can talk about it some more. But let's start talking about Step Up and where that came from, and uh, a little background, and then maybe some tips for the listeners on what they can do to to uh, make a difference.
2: Yeah, so uh, it was about 10 years ago, um, so I'm celebrating a... The- 10th anniversary of what I call the call from a friend of mine, Mm -hmm. Becky Bell, at the University of Arizona, and the two of us were working uh, with the Champs Life Skills Program, working with student-athletes across the country, but certainly on our campuses, and she happened to call me and said, hey, um, this um, professor and researcher, Dr. Alan Berkowitz, was just on our campus talking about this bystander uh, theory and bystander behavior, and it was really interesting stuff, and and she asked if I was familiar with him, and I I was, and I had actually seen him speak and had gone to some of his trainings, um, and she was saying, this is something that we can use to put together a training for student athletes to address a lot of the things that we're doing. So um, I totally agreed, and I said, I'm in, let's put it team of people together. So we got the NCAA involved. We got the Bacchus Network involved. We got the Apple conferences involved. And we went to work in 2006 and spent two years doing some research and development to put together a bystander intervention program, which basically was recognizing that most people are making good, healthy choices. We just need to also empower those people and anybody to intervene in situations where they might see something that they're concerned about. So in our research of of students and surveying um, student-athletes at three different campuses, the University of Virginia, University of California, Riverside, where I was at the time, and the University of Arizona, we were asking kind of student-athletes, what are the things they're seeing? Do they see themselves as leaders that could potentially make a difference? And would they like training um, on this bystander stuff to to help them be more active, proactive bystanders, and all of the results came back overwhelmingly positive to support this uh, initiative, and we went to work in developing the program. So it was really that's great. Because
1: so what you were finding was a lot of people wanted to help, but they didn't know how to help.
2: Yeah. So there's an altruism that's, yeah. in, that's natural mm-hmm. in everybody that you want to help someone, but there's what we call the bystander effect. In you often determine your actions based on what you see around you, mm-hmm. and in cases where there's a lot of people around you, you may see other people not reacting, which is, and then you decide not to react because you think nobody else is reacting. So why should I? Or maybe I'm seeing this wrong. Um, right. So that's what we call. Um, Pluralistic ignorance. You're going to ignore it just like you perceive everybody else is. And then there's also Uh this thing of diffusion of responsibility, and these are two key uh, concepts that Dr. Berkowitz talks about. Um, Diffusion of responsibility is, well, there's all these other people around, and certainly someone else has better experience or knowledge or skill than I do, so I'm going to let somebody else handle it. There's enough people that yep. somebody else can, can take the responsibility, so I'm not going to. So those two things tend to help people not intervene when their gut's saying, this person needs help or I'm seeing something concerning, but I mm-hmm. can't quite get myself to do it.
1: Right, and it's scary. I mean, it's, it's hard to put yourself out there where right. you're the one who's, who's making that intervention. Okay. So Absolutely. I think you've come up with some strategies and some things that people can utilize. Yep. In order to do that, what yeah, are some of the we, tips you can give our listeners?
2: Well, the the first thing is, is is we want to make sure that people know this is not a superhero training. We don't want mm-hmm. people to put themselves in harm's way. It doesn't right. make any sense to add victims or potential victims to a situation. Um, we came up with a five-step process. So we want people to, to notice the event, number one. We want people to uh, recognize or determine if it's a problem that they need to worry about. Three, we want people to take personal responsibility to intervene. Four, we want people to know and have the skills and knowledge and resources to to make a difference and intervene effectively. And then lastly, once you've gone through those first four steps, take that jump and intervene and step up. Mm -hmm. So we know it's a process because it is scary and and it does take It's a decision. So we came up with that uh, five-step decision-making process to kind of help people through that process.
1: That's excellent. And, and this can be utilized by anybody, not just college students, correct?
2: Absolutely. Um, I've, yes. I've used it in the community. In fact, the city of Irvine uh, asked me to come in and do a, a youth summit, and we addressed um, bullying, both cyberbullying and um, nice. in-person bullying, um, using the Step Up program and, and how we can intervene um, both with someone who's being bullied, as well as intervening. Uh, I talk about how can you intervene with someone you know that's bullying somebody else as a friend. Mm. Um, Because you can intervene on both sides of it. That's
1: great. Now, if people want more information on this, where would they go?
2: There is a national website um, called Mm stepupprogram.org. All one word, stepupprogram.org. And on that website, you can download the materials, you can see videos, you can see research, you can get all of the information you need. You can also get information on the various topics that you can apply the model to um, in our topic areas. But when Becky called me and we started to move forward with this, we're both practitioners in the field. Um, Mm -hmm. We're not in this to make any money, so we said, we just want to develop a program and give it away. So... The whole thing is free. You download the materials off the website, and you run with it. Now, we have some things, obviously, that we want people to um, make sure that there's fidelity in the program and that we uh, ask that you don't change the model. Um, you incorporate all of the key components, and all of those are listed on the website. So if you're going to call it Step Up, we want you to implement it and use it um, to, to meet your needs, but all of the key components and information need to stay intact in order for the program to to maintain its fidelity.
1: Sure, absolutely. And another thing that that I'll do, you know, I just put together riseradioshow.com, uh, the website, and I'm going to start a resource page, and I'm going to put a link to the Step Up program on on the website. So if people okay. want more information and want to get in touch with you or learn more about it, they'll be able to do that through our website too. Absolutely. Cool. Nice. Because, you know, one of the things, you know, it made the news a little while ago that, that case up at Stanford mm-hmm. uh, where people actually stepped up and, yeah. and made an intervention and helped that young woman and hopefully will bring him to some justice, more justice than what was handed out. But, right. um, but it, was, it took a bystander to help out with that.
2: Yeah, and that that's just a one great example, and I mean we we know it happens a lot, um, but that was just a, a highly publicized uh, a case, um, and, and obviously the injustice that that was handed out um, was what started the firestorm. Um, but then once people realized that if it weren't for these two graduate students riding their bikes across campus that decided to investigate something that looked a little weird and then mm-hmm. following through on their gut and intervening, um, we would have never had this case come forward. So not only would yeah. there not have been the injustice that happened, there wouldn't have even have been a case to talk about. So who knows what would have happened. So, But the other question we ask, um, those of us, uh, uh, for instance, on the Step Up Advisory Board have talked about, um, how do we even go a step further in how do, where were the people before the situation Mm -hmm. behind the dumpsters even occurs. How do we get people to step up and recognize as they're leaving the party or even before they're leaving the party that, you know, these two are very intoxicated. Um, What can we do to to look out and watch and protect someone that that may be in in harm's way? Um, So taking it just to the point of how early can we see things to intervene before we even have to have a a case to be heard, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you know, that's
1: kind of, that's funny that you say that it's, that was a nice lead in and we didn't plan this, but that's where my party with a plan program comes in that if you plan your party before the night, and you kind of set a limit for yourself and know what you're going to do and who you're going to be with and where you're going, you can avoid some of those situations as well. So I think it comes down to education and prevention to keep some of these things from happening.
2: Yeah, and that key is, just one point if I can make real quick, is one of the things that I've added to our UCI version of the program is really surrounding yourself with the people that care about you because Mm -hmm. that's who's most likely to intervene when needed to protect you and the people you care about. So I've asked students uh, on our campus, how many of you, if someone that cared about you, was concerned about your behavior, would want would you want to say something to you? In other words, if you knew someone that cared about you, was concerned about your behavior, would you want them to tell you? And 90 to 95% of students say yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So then I follow up with, then why do most people not talk to the people they care about when they see things they're concerned about in their behavior? And then people talk about, oh, it'll ruin their friendship, it'll ruin our trust, Mm -hmm. it'll damage the relationship. But a lot of those things are just in our head so I ask students, yep. can we get better at two things? Can we get better at talking to the people we care about when we're concerned? And two, can we get better at listening to the people that care about us? Because think about what they had to go through to talk to us and mm-hmm. share what they're feeling. Can we get better at listening to that message and then responding without being defensive and taking it in? So exactly. if we can do those two things... I think this world, our campus environments, are going to be a much better place. Not that they're bad I to totally, start with, but yeah. uh, if we can do those two things, um, we can protect the people we care about much more effectively.
1: Absolutely. And, and are there tips and, and specific things that people can do on the website and ways to intervene?
2: Yep. All of those things are are broken down by topic and and specific strategies for each topic. And obviously, you have to know your resources and your campus environment and and what you have available to you, or your community for that matter. Because, like you said, it's not just about campuses; it's it can be applied anywhere.
1: Oh, absolutely! Office settings. Yep. Uh, family situations, which are, mm-hmm. are sometimes the most difficult. But yeah, I, I, if we can educate people better about how to step in and say, hey, I'm concerned about you, let's, let's do something different, yeah, the world would be a much better place. I agree with you. Yeah.
2: And, and it can start with something as simple as just helping someone find directions or something very simple. You notice someone looks lost. Hey, can I help you find something versus just mm-hmm. ignoring it? you know, it starts with the simple and then, then the larger things become easier to address.
1: That's true. Doug, thank you so much for for coming on. And you were my first guest. This is so awesome.
2: Well, and again, I was Randy, just told that we're... Congratulations. Oh, so proud you. of you and, and happy to be here and support you. Um, but uh, happy to do it again as well if you need.
1: Yeah, definitely. We'll, we will be doing this again. I, I think we'd have a lot of fun. And we uh, have a lot to talk about. There were, I made this whole list of things I wanted to talk to you about. We didn't even get through all of them. So <laughs> next time, we will. And right. uh, for those of you who are tuning in next week, we have Katie Costner, who's going to be joining us. She started a national movement on, a, on sexual assault on college campuses. And she just, uh, her and her team put on a conference up at a college in upper, upstate New York. And I can't wait to hear how it went. And we're going to be talking to her next week about her journey and and what she's doing as part of the solution So, that we can all rise above our challenges. So, thank you, Doug, and thank you, everybody, for listening. And I think I now get to wrap up my first show. So, until next week, take care.
0: for tuning in to Rise Radio. Please join your host, Randy Havison, again next Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Until our next show, have a great week.